Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon Cinema at Trilon Cinema across all social media. You can find them at Trilon.org as well, where you can find tickets and merch and other ways to support the Trilon uh, in a weird time. My name is Jason Daphnis. Um, I don't have a quote from this movie because it's almost a silent film, uh, but you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison, and I'm coming to you live from the Sexy Club this evening, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. God damn it. Right after I said that there were no quotes worth saying in this movie. And also, Cody, he said that he wasn't taking the one from IMDb, uh, and then he just appropriated it. He just sort of twisted it around. Is that actually the one that they have on IMDb? I thought it was a different one. That was was an honest mistake. I thought it was a different one. My bad. Well, Uh, luckily, I I am prepared because everything is connected. eh? That's um, (gasps) that's what the wife said. Yeah. Um, (gasps) I'm Harry Mackin. You can find me on Twitter at Shitaki Harry. And I'm uh, Aaron, and you can find me on Twitter at RV Please, and I am your uncle. That is not a quote from the movie, but I am your uncle. Uh, I'm the cool uncle. I give you money for uh, birthdays and whatnot. If I don't give you money. Yeah, I, that's well, illegal, no, Aaron. I'm not. I'm not that kind of a cool uncle. But Fireworks I, I and Aaron's beer canceled. Yeah, Jesus Christ! Cody, how did you like that little electric car that you I gave you for your birthday? You're a four year old, and I gave you that, and you can drive it around. Your parents are upset. I hope you everything is uncomfortable that you hit yeah. that bicyclist that one summer when we were on vacation and then you paid me a hundred bucks if I never told my parents. Hey, I'm, well, Uncle Aaron drinks a little bit much at the holiday parties. I don't I don't know. If we I, he always brings his back. own flask. Yeah, he Different smells suspiciously like weed, but it might just be CBD. We're not sure. It's just his natural body odor. And that was my uncle Aaron. And today we're talking about my uncle, the movie, uh, Mon Oncle, the Jacques Tati film from 1958. Uh, we're covering this finally back on the Trilon schedule, uh, ready and raring to go. Um, it is going to be playing at the Trilon this coming weekend. Again, go to trilon.org for uh, tickets. And uh, well, I don't know why I said and, uh, but stick right there for a quick, fun Aaron Grossman summary. Yes, like a car on sideways on two wheels going through an alleyway. Uh, we are, we've are we now uh, reverted back to being on four wheels. We are back on track talking about My Uncle. Is that a reference film. to this film? Wait a minute. That no. never happens in no. this movie. It what was that? It happens like James Bond film. It's just a reference to it. It happens in happens. The Fast and the Furious, which is it the only reference to sure. Aaron has. I, I forgot he's really being cool, cool Uncle Aaron. Films. That's a very cool Uncle Aaron reference to make. I, I apologize. Thank um, you. Your parents don't allow you to watch the James Bond films, but like you no, and me. No, too scary. Well, yeah, it's fine. Uh, no, a French comedy film directed by Jacques Tati. Tati? Tati? I said Tati because it's Tati sounds like, yeah. Jacques Tati. Uh, focuses on the relationship <laughs> between an uncle, uh, Monsieur Hulot, played by Jacques Tati himself, uh, and his nephew, a young nine-year-old boy named Gerard Arpel, played by Alain Bacourt. Bacourt? 
one of those two. Uh, Hulot is out of work and spends his time living in the center of Paris, kind of mingling with people in his neighborhood and drinking at the local pub. Gerard's parents, played by Jean-Pierre Zola and Adrienne Cerventi, Cerventier, who knows, uh, view Monsieur Hulot as a negative influence on their child and attempt to straighten Hulot out by getting him to work for uh, the father of the family's uh, plastics company. Uh, My Uncle is a comedy film, often physical comedy, very sparsely filled with dialogue. Um, Many of the gags rely on the differences between the way that Hulot and the Arpels live, specifically the, at the time, futuristic house that the Arpels live in, as well as the the different societal standards that each character abides by. Uh, The film was Tati's uh, third film and the first of his in color. He directed six full-length feature films during his lifetime and and his signature style would go on to be incredibly influential to many, including uh, well, a lot of people, but Rowan Atkinson, for example, as well as David Lynch, uh, supposedly, um, which is just to say, like, kind of as like a, a general, you know, this is the first of uh, Tati's films that we are going to be covering. And also, I think kind of the last thing from an introductory standpoint to note is that uh, this character here, Monsieur Hulot, was uh, a character that was kind of in, in most or all maybe even of Tati's films as kind of this uh, uh, kind of every man comedic uh, French character who would kind of wander into different social situations and his actions would kind of highlight some of the uh, hypocrisies and, and things that were satirized in the film. So, um, yes, Jason. Yes, Aaron. Uh, thank you so much for that. My uncle, Aaron. Um, I'm going to give my top level thoughts. I think, uh, I think this movie is like, it's earnestly joyful. It's principled but it's not punching down. Aaron was saying that like the character comes through and he serves to highlight sort of some of the hypocrisies or iniquities or like, you know, just general, um, I don't know, like disparities between the world that he's, that he is from and the world that he's sort of, uh, you know, maneuvering around, but it's not as I thought it was going to be a little bit punching down ish. Uh, it's always punching up at like, you know, uh, current trends and the bourgeoisie, um, I like how it's like not quite an indictment of modernism, but of the uh, signals and sort of like uh, posturing around it, almost like the mask of it, because, you know, uh, Harry said something while we were watching that I'm going to call up later about like the difference between uh, what is portrayed as traditional and what's portrayed as modern in this movie. Um, I won't dive into that until later, but I had a, a just a real blast watching this movie. It was a, another great watch with the fellas. It's just like a really, um, you know, situational, obviously, but tied together with really colorful, fun, great characters. And you don't need to know exactly what's going on to really get the point. I think that's what's really, what really makes it fun is that you can sort of um, pay attention to what's happening moment to moment and get the overall feeling like any one of these scenes could kind of stand in for the whole movie, which isn't a knock against it. It just means that like each move, each scene is packed with such like a consistent message, consistent point to me that overall, like the movie is sort of the, the message and the moral, if there is one is kind of packed into each scene in a very efficient, fun, not distracting and not boring way. Uh, my first Tati film, as I'm assuming it is for a few people here, but I'm really looking forward to like uh, diving into what we think about this one so that I can pile on in the next one to like give it the same lens if it deserves it. Cause you know, consistent characters, recurring themes and stuff. It's going to be fun to see how over time that approach developed. Um, but I'm going to pass it to Cody uh, with a, with a coy little um, I don't know. I'm trying to pull up something that happened in the movie that might be a good way to pass 
we had such good ones for Moneyball that now I feel like the rest of these are going to be really, really bad for handoffs. But uh, I, uh, over to Cody. I'm going to whistle uh, while you're yeah. putting it directly in front of him so that he runs smack dab into oh, it. Oh, oh, um, oh I'm, I'm, I'm going to flip the switch to turn on the fish sculpture and let Cody in the door so that he can give hey. his thoughts. I'm wow. That was a whole lot. And I'm looking forward uh, to hearing what the sound effects <laughs> will come to be. Uh, <laughs> the final, yeah. So yeah. Uh, ding, ding. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Jason uh, and everybody for that lovely entrance. Um, I've had almost no prior exposure to Jacques Tati. The one film I watched last fall is the illusionist from 2010, which I'm going to spend some time talking about here up top because it might be good context to have. Not entirely sure of that, but hell, why not? Uh, it's so that's an animated film, The Illusionist, uh, based on an unproduced script written by Tati in 1956. Evidently, between him writing uh, Mon Oncle and uh, Playtime, which we'll discuss in a few weeks, the script was uh, apparently written as a letter to his eldest daughter, Helga Marie Jean Scheel. Um, uh, pronunciations will vary. I'm really sorry in advance. Uh, whom Tati had abandoned uh, soon after she was born. Uh, Evidently, uh, and she was the daughter of Austrian Czech dancer Herta Scheel, who Tati met and fell in love with in Paris. And in the summer of 1942, Herta gave birth to Helga, and reportedly, in part due to pressure from his sister Natalie, Tati refused to recognize the child and was then strong armed by uh, producer Leon Volterra of the Lido de Paris, where Tati was performing, to, uh, to leave at the end of the 1942 season. So Herta and Helga emigrated to England, where Helga later eventually married a uh, Mr. McDonald, um, was the only name I got. Their son, Richard Toddy Chef Shield McDonald, wrote uh, a letter to Roger Ebert in 2010, uh, accusing his grandfather, Tati, of having abandoned his mother, uh, Helga. And I believe that letter is published somewhere. Um, not 100% on that. So yeah, it's uh, it's generally uh, generally believed that The Illusionist was in some way written for Helga, and it was never made because of a mix of shame and uh, melancholy that Tati might have felt about what had happened. That's just speculation. Uh, there is uh, some controversy surrounding the film, mostly that Helga was never cited by name in the film's dedications, despite likely being Tati's only direct living relative. Um, you know, obviously kind of odd. Uh, I don't know how relevant again, the, how relevant this will be for our purposes over the next month or so. Uh, but at the very least, it's, I think, worth contextualizing the fact that Tati was Monsieur Hulot, uh, even though he, you know, he seems to have been front and center in all of his work. It was usually as this other alias, and there might be some deeper truth or motive behind that. Um, though at this point, I really can't be sure. Uh, maybe we'll find out more about that. Uh, but even without having context for Tati's life and work, I thought The Illusionist was really affecting. It's definitely worth checking out. The character in the movie is animated as a stand-in for Tati. I mean, it literally is Tati. Uh, and there's a certain, uh, or rather, Monsieur Hulot, anyway. And there's a certain whimsy present in that movie that I feel will eventually associate with uh, his films that we'll be watching. But we're also made very aware of the sort of curtain that's present within every performance, whether it's on a stage or, or out in the world. Um, yeah, there's a, a real sadness there. Anyway, getting back to the film at hand, um, we're talking about Mon Oncle. Uh, it, to me, felt like a, a wholesome 
instructive modernist version of Aesop's fables, kind of. It's a, a visual, uh, a vegetable. It's a visual uh, meditation on what uh, consumerism and automation can do to people. But it's uh, like Jason alluded to. It's extremely playful, and it's also incredibly easy to look at. Uh, Tati apparently once said that geometrical lines do not produce likable people, uh, which is amazing. Uh, oh my also- god! Wow! Right. Uh, yeah, and, and like, it, you know, it works. That's just thesis statement of this film, dude. Like, <gasps> oh my god. Yeah, that's my thesis, copyright Cody Narvison. Um, uh, take that, Aaron. And it's also kind of, you know, it works in tandem with the fact that some of the most memorable, and I'm sure we'll get into this, for me it was like, you know, thinking about the most memorable visual set pieces in this movie, and maybe the rest of his films as as well, they come from these clearly outlined spaces with distinct boundaries, and we get the still frame, and there's a character or a couple of characters they corrupt that space with their often very dynamic movement. Um, and this is Tati's first film made in color, which is a fact that I don't feel equipped enough to unpack yet. Um, but color certainly takes on a grand meaning here as well, you know, uh, you know, especially in communicating these different types of spaces. Uh, but yeah, this was really delightful to watch, especially with a group, uh, these guys here. And uh, I'm really looking forward to watching and talking about the rest of this series, but I've already chewed on way too much of this baguette. So I will pass what's remaining over to Harry. Uh, that's been Trilove, everybody. Um, I've been Harry, and uh, that was Cody just speaking now. Um, and uh, we'll see. I'm just kidding. Uh, Cody, that was amazing. Thank you very much for that context and for that quote that really unlocks this movie and maybe Tati's whole thing. Um, I guess I'll just real quick sort of echo what everybody's been saying. Um, I think this movie is an absolute delight. I think it's like a near-perfect comedy. Um, I think that, that uh, Jason, you had said something earlier, which is that this manages to be satirical and comedic without punching down at all. I think that's that's woven into the theme and central thesis, not to overuse that word, that this movie is able to construct, which is that it sets up this binary of something like, like dysfunction versus um like like hard uh total like like machinery and um uh synchronization and it it seems to be suggesting to me that that human beings are sort of inherently um chaotic and dysfunctional and free uh, free form right and improvised as sort of like a uh human nature and that that's actually a good thing and it actually produces what makes human beings so uh worth watching and worth um being a part of right like the the grand human experience is worth it because of our dysfunction and because of the ways that we collide and create tension with one another um, and this movie juxtaposes that with the sort of like very um, geometric, very um, uh, rigid uh, systems of uh, what we've been calling modernism um, represented by this this rich family, right? Um, and it, it is able to satirize them without being very cruel or hard to anybody because instead of sort of like suggesting that these people are bad or wrong for wanting this, it just ultimately demonstrates the ways in which their attempts at being geometric are fundamentally doomed and doomed in hilarious ways because of the way that, that human nature epitomized through their uncle. Right. But, but really it is all of their human natures as they sort of come to see at the end, the way that like, being a person is not, it's, it's totally antithetical to the idea of living an organized and uh, streamlined life. Um, you can't live your life like you're in a factory, basically, I, I think is, is maybe like the overall takeaway here. But it's what it does with that that makes this movie such a delight to watch, right? Like it just, it sets up these, these unbelievable um, 
exciting and funny and dynamic moments where you really get to feel scene by scene that that tension coming through right like these are this is a um the humor of this movie is about people who want to be a certain way and who are so utterly doomed to to be able to achieve that just because of the way that the world is right um i think that's that's best demonstrated in the garden scene but i think it's it's really like it it floats over the top of every one of these scenes and and is so well communicated and it's such a um it reminds me a lot of like like buster keaton movies right or like like the great silent films um in in that like there there was clearly just like this one overarching like like really beautiful notion that they wanted to and you can really feel it to the point where it's just like this is like it felt to me like this was Tati's whole like like sort of like um thesis on on human interaction in in like a large scale and so it really works for me um and uh Jason I think you brought up Ozu while we were watching and I just wanted to talk about how like Good Morning is Ozu's second movie in color. I can't remember what the first one was off the top of my head, but and this was Tati's first. And there's something about like early color pictures that really, really appeals to me because you can see their mm-hmm. their like brains like opening up, right? Where it's just yeah, like, yeah. how do we use color to do something and to say something? And like, I think that that particularly the way this movie uses color. Um, in, in association, in accordance with the theme that I had just been talking about is really fascinating. Um, but just like on every level, right? The cinematography, the, the physical acting, the, um, the comedic acting and the, the set design and the setups of these set piece scenes just all work so well towards this, like, I could just like watch this movie forever. Right. Like, I think that, that we had talked about how, like, um, we were wilding early on, but it was just really like, it's a two hour movie. It felt like it was an hour maybe to me. And just like, I would watch it tonight. And now I'm going to pass it over to Aaron. Sorry. I went on. No, I mean, you didn't, you didn't give me some sort of a, uh, uh, you know, reference to the film about how you're going to toss it over. Yeah, all right, Aaron, you, you just that, gotta, you gotta be brave. All right. It's not going to electrocute you. It's just, it's just a light. Okay. And just like breaking the beam of light is what's going to let me out. So you just have to just come on over here. All right. It's fine. It's going to be okay. Just come on over thank here. You. Um, yeah, I think, I think you all did a pretty good job of setting this one up. Um, I don't think I've like too much to say just kind of on my own here. I think that a lot of it will come up kind of in discussion. Um, I will say that, that overall I re- I really enjoyed this film. Um, it's, it's frankly just absolutely delightful. I think that particularly the house party sequence halfway through the film that, that we've already kind of alluded to a few times here um, that in particular is especially wonderful. Frankly, it's, it's probably one of the better, I mean, frankly, most like masterfully made uh, comedic sequences I've seen in a film. Um, it's, it's as with the entire film, slow and kind of curious at times, but it has this strong momentum that just keeps building and building. And all of these uh, kind of comedic elements that were introduced earlier in the film around the idea of this, this kind of weird modern house just keep getting reintroduced in interesting ways. Really like all that stuff. I think if I had one criticism of a film is that this scene is like so far and away the best part of the film, not that the rest part of the film. Is Good bad. Point. Um, but like that scene is like, I think if you don't have that scene, you don't have as much of a movie. Right. Um, and like, there's some great stuff with like the factory. There's great stuff in the town, but like that scene is like the centerpiece of this film. Absolutely. I think one thing we talk about watching it, uh, if you've seen parasite, that sequence is like kind of undeniably an inspiration. Uh, not in like a bad way. At one like, point, at one point the kid runs across the screen and he's wearing a native American outfit that looks exactly like the one in parasite. It's like that yes. had to have been a shout out. 
it had to have been, unfortunately, maybe not as critical uh, uh, to, yes. to that kind yeah. of uh, appropriation as, as Parasite is. Um, however, you know, and interesting, I, you know, we saw uh, Bong Joon-ho talk and we did, I, someone asked about uh, inspirations and he didn't reference Tati, but I do think there is something with like a lot of the physical humor in this that even something like Memories of Murder, you know, it's in there, right? Yeah, like just um, blocking masters, right? Like this is such a meticulously yes. blocked movie. And that's something that Bong Joon-ho is like specially known for. So maybe there's DNA there. Um, but I, my, I think my last point here is that it is interesting how little the character of Hulo uh, is doing the work of this film. I think if you compare it to uh, other character-driven comedy films, specifically like more physical comedy, like compared to like Charlie Chaplin stuff uh, with like The Tramp, compare it to, uh, you know, Austin Powers. I mean, you mentioned Rowan Atkinson, so compare it to Pink Panther, you know, Mr. Bean, Pink Panther. Um the main character in those films are often doing a lot of the heavy work, right? And it's the main character who is so eccentric in this manner, who is driving a lot of the situations that come up. This is not really the case here. Um, there's nothing really intrinsic to the character of Hulo that that invites all of this. It kind of seems like he is, he is yes, a bit of a dope and kind of this freewheeling spirit, uh, but he does genuinely just seem to be in the wrong place at the wrong time a lot. Um, that's not like an attack on this film, but I do think that like the, the main point here is that the main character is not actually Tati as Hulo on screen, but Tati behind the camera, right? Creating the comedic set pieces here, doing the set design, using color in different ways, which is not to like just push forth auteur theory, uh, but it is to say like this, this movie feels like a cohesive statement in this very singular way. And like that, the main character is like all of the little ways that like Tati is, is, creating these sequences that are so wonderful. Um, and I, yeah, I, I found it delightful. Great. Um, I had a talking point I wanted to start out on, but uh, I see Cody's hand up. Is there a place you wanted to comment on Aaron's thoughties? Oh, um, I like really briefly, I, I guess just the, um, again, shutting out the, the garden scene in the film as sort of like the, the culmination of, of everything that we had seen in the movie before and everything we, we see after um, like for me, like kind of painting it as, you know, we have uh, Monsieur Hulot uh, and this kid sort of on one side of this imagined fence. I mean, everybody's in the same yard, um, but you know, it, it's these two mostly Hulot. It's he's at odds with his environment. Like it, it's not, you know, him being like a victim of circumstance necessarily, but sort of like, again, like a lighter, more playful version of that. Mm -hmm. um, it, kind of getting into the like, you know, wrong place, wrong time. I, I think reading it as like, this is someone who cannot reconcile as easily his surroundings in the same way that these other people can. And furthermore, these other people like could not be bothered, you know, like the, the things that he's like wrestling with um, literally, literally and figuratively um, you know, the, the stuff he's going through is more or less invisible to these people. Um, and at times again, literally they like, he cannot be found. They, they cannot see him as he sort of sprints away from everything. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. That, that sequence rules. We'll probably talk about it. Um, but yeah, go ahead, Jason. Yeah, the overall point I wanted to make is actually very related to the garden party scene because I think it's one of the clearest examples of my point that, like, to Aaron's point, um, Hulo is not incredibly, like, in, I guess he's an actor, but he's not, uh, like, the, you said that he's not doing a whole lot of the heavy lifting in a way that, like, a Chaplin might, um, or, or even, like, a Keaton, you know, classic silent film stars. 
Uh, I think that's because like so much of importance is placed on the relationship of characters to their environments in this movie, rather than just like, here's a sequence that ex- that could exist universally in any movie and you would immediately read it. Uh, you kind of get familiar with them, which is going against my point of like each se- scene standing as like synecdoche for the whole film uh, to an extent. But like, I mean, Harry brought it up when he mentioned that uh, there's a mastery of blocking in this movie. Um, you know, there's sort of a, a sense of maintenance that takes place under the under the surface of every single scene and especially in that garden party scene. Um, you know, he's, he's like a cipher for the point each scene is making, right? Like without him, these things probably don't happen, but we could still watch the scenes going on and like draw our own conclusions about like, oh, isn't it goofy that they have one table for eating and one table for drinking tea? They have like three plants growing up a window and all of them seem to have, you know, no real point. Their windows are, uh, you know, uh, structured and set such that it looks like people are watching you when you're walking, when they're walking through. Like things that would be curious or cute in the moment are only given life and purpose and meaning because he's there, because he's there to react to them, uh, which isn't like revolutionary or anything. But I think it's just such a consistent, repeated thing that to me, it was like this character is essential despite being, um, you know, I don't want to say ineffectual, like he's an element of the story. I wouldn't say that the story is the most important part of this movie, but he's an element of the story and he's, uh, but, but without being like, Oh, look at the funny thing that Hulot did this time, or look at like what, uh, it's not like a Mr. Bean where it's like, he comes and creates chaos on purpose, uh, despite not knowing it, you know, it's, it's not quite that same flavor, but I, but I get what you're saying there. Man, I think the Mr. Bean comparison is so good. And I think what Cody said, which is that this is like essentially a man versus environment um, movie is so good because like that really gets at um, a lot of the heart of the comedy of this is is just that like this is like a Mr. Bean movie if everybody was like 10 percent Mr. Bean. Right. It's and and that is just sort of Tati's like like his whole sort of like um, viewpoint on humanity itself is that we are just not perfectly calibrated for our environments and that creates dysfunction and misunderstanding and um tension right like i think all of there's this recurring motif of a guy who keeps sweeping trash and he has to sweep it from one side of the street to another because it keeps it getting in other people's ways um there are all of these misunderstandings born of people bumping into each other or like a scale that has a flat tire or i mean a truck that has a scale that has a flat tire so that the the scale isn't working quite properly um all of the uh the scenes follow the same sort of beat where um it, it's a, they're about people that are trying to create um high level organization and functionality and it inevitably falls apart for them um that's sort of epitomized through um tati's character um hulo but like he's not he's by no means the only one right um and that kind right, of right. i wanted to talk about yeah the the sort of sacred geometries that that cody brought up and that you brought up when you brought up blocking jason because like this movie does an incredible thing where it actually really like explicitly calls out the blocking as something to pay attention to in the form of this modern house where there are literally these spots on the floor like there there are the there are these rugs on the on the floor outside in the modern house that these rich people step into to enact their roles right like and there's there's also the the pathways and the the two um tables you talked about and uh at the factory he drives this um garden path to this literal like spot that's picked out with an arrow for him to park his car and like 
the the blocking of these scenes is literally is literally established in the physical set design of the scenes and it's it's ridiculous right because at, at a certain point in this garden party this group of people they're all trying to avoid stepping off of the past stepping off of their roles and they bump into each other and they knock into each other and knock things over and everything falls apart right and that's the comedy there and then you juxtapose that with like when Tati goes to his apartment and it, instead of there being sort of like rigid um geometries for him to navigate through the instead the geometries sort of frame him right like there are these windows that all of these people keep passing through each other and you see different parts of their bodies and they're they're sort of colliding and intersecting with one another but but in this sort of like like beautiful um spontaneous way and like like for instance with the the kids scene right like there's this great scene in the modern house where everybody is is um so rigidly defined by their roles and the opening and closing of gates and the bringing and taking of um trays and servants and then we cut to this scene where these kids are eating in this field before they they create pranks um to, to play on one another and they're just running everywhere and there's this great big open field and nobody is in these these rigid ge geometrically defined lines they're they're running wherever they want and it's like a breath of fresh air right and it's like it's visually telling you that right like the metaphor is so evident and it's so on display and it works so well and it's so funny um and it's like perfectly communicative, right? Like to the point where you don't have to say anything. All you have to do is juxtapose this series of images and these series of physical acting in these physical spaces. The way that these spaces are designed and the way that these people are acting in them, it tells you everything you have to know in this like really, really profound way. Yeah, I really well characterized, Terry. The, I guess one more note on, on the blocking and kind of my relationship to it as I was watching. I'm even now still trying to like wrap my head around what it means. And like, this is what I've landed on. Maybe other people will have thoughts on it. Maybe they won't, but the like one sort of side effect of the, like the blocking and the like frequency with which we have this, you know, the camera is usually set up some distance away. It's usually static and, you know, blocking ensues scene choreography ensues we often don't see uh, Monsieur Hulot's face, um, at least like, you know, as often as we would expect. And that's the case for pretty much everybody as well. And like this, I guess, leads me to think a couple of a couple of things. One, maybe more obviously that there's a priori prioritization over or rather of environment over character, um, which, I you know, I guess makes sense given what type of movie this is and how, you know, it, it is you know, if, if we're posturing person versus, you know, environment or, or society or, or, or what have you, yeah, to a grander extent, perhaps that makes sense. But there's also, you know, maybe this, this low key statement of, you know, that this modern house, for example, is, you know, very carefully blocked in this way. The choreography of this garden party is, party is very, you know, carefully uh, set up and configured, but that like, there's, there's a, a rift in how that interacts with the camera and the viewer sees that as well. Like the, the, the camera's over here, but the garden party is way over there. And like, we, like, we can't, we can't necessarily see everybody. And it weirdly makes for a more engrossing movie. Like if I, if I can't see, um, Ulo's face, like I want to see how he re is reacting to, to this thing. Obviously like the whole bit of it is like, there's again, like a lot of dynamic movement going on, not just from Ulo, but from, 
like every character. And so that movement kind of speaks for itself, but there's also like, I, you know, Jacques Tati can certainly emote. He's, you know, a good performer. I want to see how, how he reacts to this, that weird, like neighbor <laughs> with, you know, with the face, you know, she reacts funnily. She's so to things. Great. I want to see what, yeah. Like I want to see her reaction to this second fountain. Um, so yeah, I, I like maybe that, rings true to i don't know y- y'all's uh relationship with this movie but i, I did want to call that out because the blocking is it feels more and more pivotal the more i think about it uh but yeah i, I you said two things that that really appealed to me um cody the f- the first of which is like i think that weirdly this movie had a, a weird contemporary black backlash because it was seen as sort of a reactionary conservative movement against sort of modernization of uh, of France and of sort of like like post World War II industrialization in general. Um, I don't I don't agree with that take right like and and that's silly for me to say because I'm a I'm a white uh, American dude in 2021 and like not a French film critic in the 1950s. But like to me, there's something way more humanist about. I think that that like Tati seemed to be like like examining this idea that something about progress or something about modernization and something about um, even industrialization um, or mechanization it like implies that that it is a good or it is correct or it is uh, fundamentally the next step in sort of like evolution or toward um, human betterment to be more standardized and to be more streamlined and to be more uh, like defined and rigid and sort of like um tensionless right frictionless um and that is what the the blocking particularly in the modern house represents to me right is that these are people who are almost robotic in the way that they're moving about their roles and and that extends to the way that they're thinking about their roles with one another right like she is a housewife he is an industrialist he uh they want their child to be a very earnest studying young man who uh basically spends all of his time going to school coming back from school studying and going to sleep right and that's why they they can't stand this idea that that he is um so um enamored with Hulot because he's a bad influence right and i think that this movie is taking that idea to task this idea that that we should be that it that it's somehow better for humanity to be moving away from um if not dysfunction necessarily than sort of like um spontaneity and um improvisation and uh friction with one another this movie is is delighted by those things and it wants us to be delighted by those things as sort of like the the um the human element and i think that like this movie makes all of its characters even the rich people um in my mind very charming because it does such a good job of illustrating how the silliness and dysfunction of humanity is so charming and that's the takeaway that the movie wants you to have right is that like actually like like even when people are getting in each other's way and even when everything is going wrong like that's that's what humans are and there's something like lovely and beautiful about that and i think that it illustrates that really well which is how it gets away with being um so pointed in its critiques without really like ever coming off as mean to anybody necessarily even it is if it is sort of poking good-natured fun at these people right and I, i think that that's um that's where the block, what the blocking suggests for me. And I really love that idea that you had about how the camera is in tension with the blocking, because as Aaron said, like 
who's behind the camera? It's Tati, of course, right? So like, it totally makes sense that he would want to generate that friction between the way things are shot and the characters in the camera and what we're supposed to be seeing as the set is uh, communicating, right? So like, even that tension between blocking and between filming is something that is pointed in my mind. Sure. And I think this is getting around to a point that uh, while we were watching the movie, one of us said something like modernism is hell, just a one-off comment. And Harry, I think you said, and I'm probably paraphrasing, but something about like how the family, the, the rich family that owns the very modern looking home, they're not like, they are not stand-ins for modernism. They are, they're like a traditional family, right? They're a heterosexual couple uh, who has one child and a dog and, you know, a, a two-story home uh, in, in, you know, mod, mod posh France. And I want to dig into that, like, uh, creation like what 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 it is saying then about like the modernist like i said either posturing or that performance on top of you know still traditional family structure um and and what it's you know is, is it separating those two is it attacking one uh playfully and like understanding that the other is still human i think this is in concert with what harry was saying but i see aaron's hand up so i assume you've got something to say about it well, I want to, I think we, I, I like the point and I think there's something there. I want to make sure that we're not assuming that whatever modern was at the time was, you know, naturally uh, predisposed towards, you know, the breaking up of gender roles and whatnot. I think especially of if course. you look at, yeah, if you look at what was happening with, with technology uh, in, in kind of the, the 50s, uh, the 40s, 50s, and, and even kind of early 60s, a lot of what technology was doing was actually enabling further domestic duties and actually kind of driving a lot of uh, uh, kind of historical gender roles even deeper, yeah. right? And this movie enabling. has something to say about that, right? Right, yes. right. It's, it's like, yes. you know, the more the, the promise of, of modernism than the actual, like, impl implementation of it, I think. Yes, it, it was about allowing, you know, mostly women caretakers and whatnot to uh, kind of do their jobs better, right? Uh, he, here's a, a new stove. I mean, the, the, a lot of the comedy here around that is like so good, especially like the stove that like flips the steaks. It's so good, kitchen. man. So good, obviously. Like, I'm sure there were so many things like that that absolutely were considered like up and coming inventions that were just completely impractical uh, in every sense. You still see that today, obviously. Um, but just just wanted to make sure because like, you know, I think there is uh, uh, there is a lot that this film has to say about gender roles and whatnot, specifically around the father that kind of is always going to work and always busy uh, and is kind of the breadwinner and uh, the mother who is the one who is tinkering with all these gadgets and whatnot in the kitchen. Um, so just want well, yeah, to like it's, that. It's, yeah, I, I appreciate it. It's saying those things through the character of the child, right? Through um, Hulo's nephew. Right. You know, right? Like he wants to be away from this way of life. He 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 covets his time with his uncle because his uncle has that that chaos about him. He has that like uh, lack of regard for this. Uh, you know, the reality of modernism versus again, like the promised freedoms of it. You know, like science fiction and all these, uh, you know, all these technological advancements in theory should enable us to live more like controlled chaotic lives but in fact like you said aaron it is putting more strictures on you know currently the way that society is run it is using uh you know uniformity as uh you know as an end goal it is um creating like just quicker easier more flashy ways to do the things we already do but with no more effect it's it's telling that like i can watch this movie and say hell the the life that hulo is living seems like a pretty good one 
you know, 60 years later, I can still say that seems like, you know, a life that I could see somebody wanting to live in 2021. Yeah. It's like, we have to, we should, um, as Aaron was saying, like be careful about like separating modernism as maybe we think of it. Right. And postmodernism, um, from like, basically, I don't know if there's a better word for it, but like industrialization. Right. Because like, I'm thinking about now, like, and I don't know exactly, of course, how, um, French history and culture parallels this, but I'm, I'm thinking very much about like the, the American 1950s and post-World War II, where as Aaron noted, like there was this, this very regressive fundamental drive toward traditionalism that was in fact facilitated by the rapid industrialization of America, right? Is that like suddenly white picket fences and nuclear families and, um, the, the stove and the microwave and the, the refrigerator, um, it like, they like, were marketed and then ended up recreating this sort of like this very traditional has always been this way um framing around the the family and the family structure uh and the quote-unquote american dream that actually didn't really exist except that it was marketed very very successfully but like and that's sort of what this movie is saying right is that like these are these are people who are uh, he's a literally a factory owner, right? And literally a plastic factory owner, the plastic representing the future, uh, and this sort of like process optimization process mechanization, uh, is supposed to represent this sort of like drive toward optimization of the human animal. Right. And I think that this is the, the movie is taking that to task and maybe even all of the sort of fundamental regression, um, and, and sort of like nuclear family traditionalism that comes with it in a secondary, in secondary terms, I guess. Yeah. I, th- I think that the, the movie is very much concerned with kind of the, uh, the paradox that is created with industrialization and increasing technology, uh, technological, you know, advances and whatnot, specifically from a domestic standpoint, which is like, and from like a workplace standpoint, which is, yes, there are benefits that you see for due to having a nice refrigerator and a nice stove and all of these kind of gadgets, right? Like uh, hypothetically having a kind of this self-cleaning uh, robot thing that's in this film, uh, shout out to like the early Roomba uh, predecessor, I guess, like hypothetically that does enable, you know, you as for, as a mother, for example, to spend more time doing other stuff. Uh, if you're, workplace is automated in a certain certain fashion hypothetically that does enable use the worker to work less right but the paradox is that that doesn't actually happen um the mother here is incredibly busy uh all the time uh partly because she just always has stuff to do to kind of maintain these little trinkets and gadgets but also because there is a greater social weight that is put upon her as someone who owns these yeah. things as a status symbol uh similarly um as harry mentioned like i don't want to make too many assumptions about like French culture and society at this time. But like, I cannot think of a way to read the scene in which uh, Hulo goes to like the job interview and has read the hours. And it's like, get here at eight. You have exactly one hour of break from this time to this time. And then you, you end at six. Like, I believe that is supposed to be a, at the time, a fairly strenuous uh, work schedule. Right. I think it, in these days, we'd say that's somewhat standard, maybe a little more than what the average person uh, at a white collar job works. But like, right. The thing is that 
he shouldn't have to work that much, right? Like this is a, a top of the line plastics factory that is automated, has all of these machines. And for some reason, they still need everybody to work those hours, right? And I think that that is one of the main things that, that Tati is uh, kind of focused on by portraying these, uh, you know, the workplace and uh, the home life. Right. And like, I think that's, I think that is overall the point it's making. I'd like to get into the, how this movie's portraying work. Cause like, like you said, the job of industry is to make tasks easier and make, and leave us more time for things that are not the tasks that are not, uh, you know, the work, the labor, but in reality, in a society driven by capital, it is not like, it's just saying, Hey, look at how much more time and bandwidth we have to create more work efficiency creates more work in this paradoxical way. And I think that's what it's being poked fun at throughout the movie, but in particular, those scenes that are actually on a job site. So I, I do want to talk about um, how, you know, it's portraying work because there are a few like really fun scenes where he's actually Mr. Beating his way through, you know, the, the hose maker. Um, and, but like even in the scenes where that aren't in offices or, you know, discussing, uh, you know, work as, as paid career, where like labor is, is the, is the subtext there. And like the hypocrisy of technology, technology and and advances that are supposed to make that better and, you know, improve lives actually being used to just squeeze more out of the people who adopt it. Right. Uh, One of my favorite scenes in this whole movie is the scene with the dog, right? Where like the, the factory foreman or not the factory foreman, the factory owner is, is running through or is walking through his factory, but he's preceded by um, his little wiener dog and everybody in the factory is just totally slacking off, like asleep at their desks, flirting yeah. with one another, whatever. And um, when they see the dog run by, they know that the factory owner is coming and then they they make themselves look like they're busy, right? Like that's such a perfect encapsulation of the sort of square peg round hole uh, thesis that that Tati is, is constructing here, right? Where he's saying that like automation and human optimization are not, there. there is a, this is an anti-human, uh, goal ultimately right and it's not going to help people and it's not going to make anything better and it's it's sort of incumbent on us to to understand that right or like not incumbent on us but but just like almost relax right it's funny because it's like it's not that harsh a movie but it is saying like you got to relax because like you had said jason like all of this is only generating more work and more um dysfunction and it's creating these circumstances where um you have to be uh like ashamed of your dysfunction rather than sort of like dealing with it right like i think one of the big comedy pieces is the the fish um that's turning on and off and like look how much distress that gives to everyone and it's a totally like invented distress right like to to aaron's point like all of so much of the distress in this movie is fabricated by um, expectation and, and self expectation, um, that, that like, oh, I need to have this fish on so that they know that like, we're keeping up with the Joneses. Um, when in fact it's like, who ca- who cares if that fish is on? And then that culminates in the, the great garden sequence, right? Yeah. Sorry. My finger was not near the, uh, not near the unmute, unmute button. Uh, yes, I, I, I'm seeing, What I keep thinking of when I think of the work scenes is the scene is the music that's coming through. I think I mentioned while we were watching that, like uh, in the more rural, um, we'll call them the the more like chaotic scenes where it's just life as usual back where Hulot lives and the more controlled, uh, regimented geometric scenes of, you know, presumably this city, at least where the bourgeoisie lives Um, in the chaotic scenes, we're seeing 
you know, music is playing throughout. People are making noise. There's, you know, just the sound of life going by in the more geometric scenes. There's almost no music and very little sound. Um, and all of it diegetic, I believe, or at least as I remember the impression was, uh, in the, in the work scenes though, there are a few scenes where you can hear music, but it's always piped in. There's like the scene, uh, with the meeting of the business executives where it's actually being piped in through the phone, I think. Yeah. When he picks up, it's like the, the outside world is literally calling, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's what, I, that's what I want to uh, hone in on is like, is it using music in the same way? Uh, because I think that like the establishing, um, the rural scenes versus the more uh, inner city scenes as like opposed uh, through the music is, is smart and wise. And like, it's, it's not super subtle, but it works. Um, and then on, but like the, the meeting point there is, is the labor is the work is the, uh, you know, commercialization, the creation of the thing that turns a place like Hulo's neighborhood into a place like the rich couple's neighborhood. Um, and is there like, what is, what is the, what is being done there? Is it just like, is that just a cute way of, uh, finding a midway point diegetically between these two things or it, or like what more is being done at a mechanical level with the music in those scenes. Um, and I, I would also like, I would say the, the parallel I notice between the music is that it color is working in a very similar way, right? Where um, the scenes that take place in the city and the scenes that take place outside of the modern home or the factory are very bright. Um, Jason, you noted particularly grass uh, and the grass in this movie looks great. It almost like glows with like a green gold glow. Right. Um, but in general, like, like blue skies, uh, vibrant plants, um, Hulot's apartment is, is like purple and, uh, and, uh, green, which interestingly the, uh, car later in the movie also is, um, and it's, it's beautiful. Right. And then in the, the modernist house, um, colors are very strictly defined and regimented, right? And like they can't be out of place. There are like little squares of grass versus here are my squares of tan rock versus here are my my squares of uh, gray rock. And like here's the path that winds between them. Inside the house itself, there is some vibrant furniture, but it's set against these Spartan bare uh, modernist walls, right? And and so it's it's interesting the way that that is also paralleled. Um, in in terms of the 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 construction of of those scenes it's really um interesting right because i think that that music sort of it it is playful in in the same way that that this dysfunction of humanity is playful right and i think that oftentimes like we are conditioned to want to hear music, even this sort of like very funny lilting, uh, winking music and it's really interesting that that happens at the points where um unraveling begins to occur right like i believe there there might be music in the scene at um at night when hulo breaks back into the apartment or the uh um modernist home to sort of like try to um fix his mistakes right and there's that great uh scene where the the house looks like it has eyes because the two people keep looking up out the windows to like look for him um and and so like there i think you're right i think that there's like if I had to, if I had to construct a sort of like take on the music, it would be like, that's where the human meets the, uh, the process. Right. And it's like, when you, when you add humanity into this, this factory, this assembly line, what happens is like something gets messed up, but it gets up messed up in this funny, like, like humorous and and exciting way. And like, actually we should be okay with that. Right. And, And that like, 
mechanism and optimization are not necessarily the uh, the end goal, and nor should they be. That sort of thing. Yeah, I, I was um, surprised how little this film relies on music. I think. I mean, there, there's there there is this kind of really delightful song that plays kind of following around the main character every once in a while. Um, but I, I think that it doesn't use music as a crutch. I think specifically a lot of physical comedy were, were kind of uh, expecting it in a lot of ways. Like uh, we talked about the, the first pink Panther film, the sellers one, I believe came out in 63, which would have been five years after this. Mm-hmm. That is a film that absolutely uses. I mean, specifically that name, pink right. Panther theme, which to be fair is a hell of a theme. If you got that, use it, I guess. Um, but that is kind of constantly just in the background, letting you know that like, Oh, some sneaky kind of funny shit is up. Right. Um, this film mm-hmm. doesn't really do that specifically. You know, if you, if you look at the, the garden party scene, um, that is a scene where a lot of that momentum is simply due to gags that have been built up over time. There is not this kind of Danny Elfman, uh, wacky, uh, you know. In, in fact, there's only like a lot of chatter, time. right? Like I think yes. that that music would be out of place because all of the people are constantly talking over one another. Right. Well, there's, right. there's it's... the chatter. There's the the fish fountain that is making this incredibly annoying noise the entire oh, time. Oh, it's so it's funny, like, dude! The oh my you god! Have music it takes away from that juxtaposition, and you you need that in order to like establish just how silly everything that's going on is, right? Yeah. There's. It it goes back to what uh, what we've all been saying about like the environment versus the people, the blocking, uh, just everything having like such a an invisible tension that becomes that sort of like starts to fray and unravel as the scene goes on. And again, it's because that one character comes in because Ulo is, um, you know, there to unravel it, sort of, but not yeah, it, not not maliciously. He's he's just like part of the environment interacting with it, you know. Yeah, and like what what an unbelievably brilliant construction right because it's like like what is comedy right like there there's some theory that is like comedy is dysfunction you know what i mean it's it's like a story is tension and so the idea of introducing that like in a in a meta sense like you want that and it's like of course we want that we're watching this comedy and then you start to think it's like oh but but i want that generally you know like i want the the comedy of the human experience which is in this movie's uh terminology it's like it's like the the dysfunction of colliding with people, of creating tension because things aren't going right. And like there's some sense in which that is actually like the joy of living, right? Is that you you can break out of those geometries, like Cody said. And I think that like the whole package here really, really does that, right? To the point where like yeah. the the movie is bookended by dogs that are that are running through this neighborhood, right? And it's it's such a delight, a simple, like almost childlike delight to see dogs running through a neighborhood because like it it reframes the way that you are viewing these streets, right? Like you're seeing them the way a dog would, right? Like they're, they're ducking under um, cars in a way that we wouldn't, they're, they're ducking through little holes and fences. And it's like, wow, like, like this, this is great. Right. And it's like, that's also uh, what the, the movie itself is doing with, with geometries, right? Like Cody said, it's like, when you, when you zigzag and when you get out of your rigid um, lines, like you have a lot more fun and you're a lot more human. And like, I think using comedy to illustrate that in that sort of like meta textual way almost is, is just like really, really um, exceptional. I do. I do love that. That is like this movie's stock and trade is not even like as a character piece. I guess I expected it 
you know, with the poster and the title and generally like it's uh provenance. I, I expected it to be a, a, a Mr. Bean, a, um, you know, comedy of errors featuring one guy. And he tips over the dominoes when he starts every scene, but it's not that explicit. It's not that, I guess, tacky or preachy uh, or tautological. It just like it go like it, it exists outside of that character. Um, but it just like highlights and magnifies the way, like the, the point of each scene through that character. I, I really love that. I think it's like you said, it's a genius way to structure, uh, the whole movie overall. Um, but like every scene has that thing that hooks you with some little joy or something to remember about it. The, the canary that, um, you know, only sings in the light. So he leaves at work for work every morning, uh, setting the, like uh, the reflection just to, just to catch the, the canary so that it sings. Um, you know, all, all, all that stuff is just like, there's something to hook onto, like, just like, even outside of our general try love brain of reading further into a movie than it usually would, would reveal to you. I think that it's just a, an absolute astonishing joy to watch. It's just, it's, it's really fun. It just like, it awakens the joy that you have, right. For like, for the, the random, um, like chaos of life. Um, I also just wanted to talk about that canary real quick. It's, it's so good because like, it's a reflection of a window that that isn't really supposed to be there right like it's it's just the sun catching his window in a certain way and he has mm-hmm. to like um he has to maneuver his window just so and like open it up during the middle of the day um so that that canary can be caught by it and it's like it's such a that happens right he does that and then we immediately cut to the modernist house where where they are also doing that but they're using tools that are set up to make their lives easier for them and and like they're they're like optimizing that process to their own end and it's like it creates such a different view right it's like it's it yeah it's so good man this does really feel like a like a movie that my like i don't know like my dad should have shown me when i was like 12 you know what i mean yeah, i don't know yeah. why like i don't know i watched like pink panther i don't know if i would have caught on to it at that age like uh but you would have understood it at a base human level, you know. That's all that's physical magic. comedy. I understand at a base human level because I myself am a bumbling oaf, tripping over things and bumping into lampposts. As are but, we all. That's yeah. the whole thing. Yes, metaphorically and, we're and all, literally. Unfortunately, we're all just frogs bumping our asses. Go listen to our episode about McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Um, hey. I have one one more thing, which is the ending, which is kind of weird and funny and interesting in that, like, in my mind, the way I read it is like they give the dad um, an arc right at the end of this movie where, like, it turns out that 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 all of this time he was he was so angry about Hulo. Um, he did end up being influenced by him because, like, the, the very last thing that happens in this movie is um, the industrialist sends Hulo away finally because he's a bad influence on his son, quote unquote. They drive him to the um the train station or whatever and have this sort of like tearful goodbye but then the industrialist and his son they end up having this like he ends up playing one of the pranks that hulo um and his son used to do together and then they like bond for the first time right so like there's some suggestion that at the end of this movie like um the dad ends up uh understanding why his son related to Hulo and is able to sort of like use that to break out of his own sort of sternness and have a little bit of fun and reconnect with his son. And like Hulo kind of taught him that. What did you guys take from that ending? Because it is kind of funny that like it all happens right at the end like that. 
Yeah, I I think you could view that maybe as a weakness. I don't know. I it you know, Hulo is a I think his philosophy gets gets its roots in the uh, even if yeah. you're not even if you're not uh, and that you know ties in with the dog as well, right? I mean the dog the dog that right. we finally see running free is the family's dog and we see like oh, it, it is truly happier uh being amongst its own people and and you know dealing with the messiness of society and all of the kind of pleasure that it brings. And I think that like even though I don't think we're expecting the father to tear down his house or anything. Right. But, uh, I think, you know, he's changed, I think at the end. Yeah. I really like the way you characterize that just now where like, it almost, it just sinks into him. Right. Like he didn't even realize it, but all of a sudden like he, he absorbed via osmosis, like some of the, uh, hilarious antics and humanism of Hulo because he couldn't help it because that's how humans actually are. Right. He realized how truly funny it is to make somebody run into a lamppost, which is very, it's pretty universal human experience. Yes. We all love to see it. Well, I think I am nearly done uh, talking about this movie in particular. Um, do we have any final thoughts before we head into our last segment? Cool. Well, then, Harry, I think you and I have a job to do. Yes, thank you. Uh, I believe that it is time for <gasps> Cody Snowdies. Wowzers. Uh, thank you. You can really hear gentlemen. the acoustics of your new apartment there, Harry. Oh, thank yeah. You. Oh, Ricola. Um, yeah, thank you, uh, as always, for that that whimsical introduction. Uh, if you're listening to this episode upon its release, then it's been a little over a week since award season wrapped up. And I know you might be thinking of the Golden Berries, but I'm actually referring to the Academy Awards, which aired just a few weekends ago uh, at this point now, uh, or at the point where you're listening to this. Now, with the exception of our Golden Berries, uh, awards guilds and ceremonies tend to be uh, a bit of a sham. Uh, although in the year of its release, Mon Oncle won the uh, award for Best Foreign Language Film, uh, as the award was called at the, at the time and for many years. And, uh, you know, that seems to hold up pretty well. In retrospect, the other most deserving candidates from that year might have been like Elevator to the Gallows and previous episode, The Hidden Fortress. Um, but I don't know if any of us here would really have much no, to shit. about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, those we are love both those good movies. movies. Yeah. Yeah. They're both good movies. Uh, Mononcle is a great movie. Uh, what I'm getting at is there's a whole doggone history of foreign language films at the Oscars that might be fun to dig into in a segment I'm going to call Mon Oscar. Um, <laughs> pronunci- pronunciations be damned. going to get so embarrassed by our lack of knowledge around Yeah, this. I'm, I'm already losing. I'm, <laughs> oh, I'll just take okay. a L and screw this one out. Well, I wasn't going to give the evergreen disclaimer, but, you know, I, I've done what I could to cultivate uh, this game around our probable collective knowledge about international cinema. Um, I trust and you. I'll, yeah, I'll remind you all later as well. But what I'll do uh, here in this exercise is describe a series of films that have or maybe haven't uh, been recognized by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. As I run through each one, if you think you know the film being described, raise your little Zencaster hand. Once I see a hand raise, uh, raised, I'll stop reading. I'll call on you. And if you're correct, you'll get a point. I'll try my damnedest uh, to, to keep an eye on, on those rapidly raised hands. Uh, but yeah, if you guess and you're not correct, we'll keep going until someone can get it right. Each person will only get one guess per round, so use that guess wisely. And uh, as always, remember that uh, Trivia Mafia rules apply, so use your noodles, not your Googles, um, or your Bings, or your Yahoos, or Ask Jeeves, or, or whatever. Uh, but yeah, with that, on with the show. And uh, we're actually going to start here with a film that uh, I think we're all very familiar with. It was one of the first films recognized by the Academy 
uh, for a foreign language slash international cinema type of honor back in 1952, although the film itself was released in 1950. Uh, today, we not only uh, we, we not only see it as one of the best films of that year, but also as one of the greatest Japanese films ever made. Uh, I see Harry's hand. Harry, do you have a guess? Is it Rashomon? This film comes in at a tight 88 minutes. This movie, you know it, you love it. It's Rashomon, baby. Uh, as I uh, as I alluded to, despite us never devoting a full episode to it, this movie Rashomon has become an integral part of Trial of through the Rashomon rule uh, and the Rashomonis. The Rashomon rule, of course, uh, is that no film needs to be longer than Rashomon, a perfect film released in 1950 and directed by Akira Kurosawa, coming in at, again, a crisp 88 minutes. Uh, but yeah, Rashomon didn't technically win the foreign feature Oscar. That uh, This was before it was its own formal category. Uh, instead, the movie was voted separately by the Board of Governors as the most outstanding foreign language film released in the United States during 1951 as a sort of special award. Ooh, that was more of a mouthful than I thought it would be. But yeah, Harry gets the point there. Uh, congratulations to Harry. Congratulations uh, to Rashomon. Uh, but we're going to, uh, oh, I guess I should allow, Harry, do you have any any um, your words? Uh it, Usually some people take this time to, to gloat or to, you know, WWE kind of banter. Do you have anything for the fine folks here? I think I know better than that at this point. Pride comes before the fall. Let the let the machination know I've learned my lesson. I'm a new man. Um, I think we're, we're beginning to see the results of that. I'm starting to do the thing I said I wouldn't do now, so I'm going to mute myself. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Wow. Uh, moan learning about thyself. Uh, moving along to number two. <laughs> Uh, and I, I should say, following Rashomon, uh, as I you know gestured at up top, and as we already talked about, there's a a long stretch of time where I was like, I think some of the fellas might know these, but I don't know if all the uh, you know all the fellas would know these. So the rest of these entries will lean to uh, to more recent years. Thankfully, uh, this next one in particular made a, a big impression on American audiences. In uh, in addition to winning Best Foreign Language Film, it also won for Cinematography, Score, and Set Decoration. It was nominated for uh, other categories like Best Picture and Best Director. The film was released in 2000, and it was the third of Ang Lee's films to be nominated for Best Foreign Language. Aaron, uh, do you have a guess for us? Uh, no, actually. I'm totally blanking. All right. Oh, Jesus. Um, well, never mind. All right, uh, Harry. Did I see your hand up next? I put it back down. Okay. Well, I uh, I guess I'll read the last line again because that exhausted my clues. I thought somebody would have gotten it. Uh, this film was released in two thousand, and it was the third of Ang Lee's films to be nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. What movie I'm, is this? I'm just going to guess the Hulk because I don't know the answer. All right, uh, <laughs> Jason put in the in the Hulk uh, a, a valiant effort, but not correct. Harry, do you have a guess for us? I might be embarrassing myself here. Is it Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? Crouching Tiger, oh, Hidden Dragon. God. Correct answer. Uh, yes, indeed. Wow. Isn't that like 2006? Uh, no, my, 2000, uh, dude. The one out of my book. You're old as hell, Aaron. I might rewatch that right now. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, hey, you could rewatch that. Um, I should note Ang Lee's previous two films that received nominations for Best Foreign Language Film were The Wedding Banquet and Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, both of which Let's are go. tremendous. <sighs> yeah. Uh, I would uh, recommend anyone checking either of them out. Um uh, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman especially has been like one of my my greatest finds of this year. I the best love be actually ever made. Ooh, very good take. Uh, yeah, we we got Harry uh, up front with a, a commanding lead. Um, I'll you know 
putting some gloating words in his mouth form pride cometh before the fall etc um waiting for aaron and jason to get on the board but we got three more questions here it's still anybody's race it's it's Uh, anybody's game cody uh i am in no way assured of my victory anything could happen if i was more of a nitpicker i would point out that i don't know really know if you can unbuzz in in really any trivia game that i've ever eh, it's fine I think we should keep going. I mean, both of you did Wait. it, so yeah. I was going to say, Aaron, you did no, it first. I, so. No, I. Oh, I. I took the L on that. I just. I. I thought that I. That was my guess. Oh, okay. All right. Well, you know what? I'm just saying. Never it left seems the piece. like a pretty natural thing. Basically, it's, hey, it's okay. chess. It's chess rules. I, I've been watching a lot of Jeopardy, an actual trivia game that has these rules, but it's fine. It's fine. I'm done. Did you just flex about watching a lot of Jeopardy? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Well, he passed recently, and I've been sad. Cody, please go on. So I don't yeah, me too. The antics. The antics. Uh, number three here. This next film is from the year 2006, and uh, it's another one that got a lot of attention outside of just the foreign language film category. In fact, it won three Oscars for various technical achievements, despite not actually winning the foreign language film category. Uh, but even today, it still feels regarded as a sort of modern classic, all thanks to the visionary direction of Guillermo del Toro. What movie is this? I saw Aaron, then Jason, then Harry. Aaron, you go first. Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth is indeed the movie being referenced. Uh, Yeah, it was a little surprising to look back and see that it won the awards for uh, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, and Best Makeup. It didn't get the trophy for Best Foreign Language Film. That went to The Lives of Others, uh, which, uh, another great film, it has been... I think kind of similarly fondly remembered. Um, you'll look, I don't know, my sources, like browsing letterboxed, uh, people still seem to like it. Uh, so I don't know. That was just a tough year, I guess. Um, so yeah, shout was out. Children of Men, uh, I that think was, that was 2006. an American production or a British production. Uh, it that didn't get nominated for foreign Best Foreign film. Language. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I remember that, there was a lot of yeah. with that and Pan's Labyrinth at the same time coming out the same year, I believe. Great year, damn. Yeah. yeah Holy shit. Man. Um you know what? Shout out to 2006, a, a fine year for film. Probably maybe even a very good year for film. Uh, but we're gonna move on to uh, another year in film. This is number four. We've got uh you know, we're talking about the winner of the the foreign language film Oscar at the twenty fifteen ceremony. Um and that was Ida. Uh Aaron, why is your hand up? Oh, that was a mistake. Okay. Uh, but but if you want to consider... You but if you... Good, good Did point. you take your hand off the piece? Uh, good just point. I am next, going yes, to, yeah. I'm going to sit out this next one. No, you're not. Come on. No, but so okay. Uh, I'm. I'm. You know what? I'm gonna. I'm gonna walk it back here. We're gonna start from the top. Uh, Thank you, Cody. The winner of the foreign language film Oscar at the 2015 ceremony was Ida. That is, uh, we're just talking about a lot of terrific films. That's another terrific film directed by uh, Pavel Pavlikovsky. Boy, oh boy, I hope I got that somewhat close to correct. Uh, he also made Cold War, uh, which is another film I love a whole bunch. But this is, you know, we're not we're not here to talk about Pavlikovsky uh, entirely. We're actually going to briefly focus on another film from that year that didn't win that category. This is a Spanish language film. That we have all seen. In fact, we're approaching the one-year anniversary of us having watched it together. Jason, your hand is up. Do you have a guess for us? I literally didn't. Uh, I apologize. Um, oh, oh hell! I don't. I, I. I. I know. I know what you're talking about, but I do not remember the title. Uh, because I because I'm forcing myself to guess. Um, I know it's not this, but I'm guessing Spirit of the Beehive. 
Spirit of the Beast. Hey, I mean, that's at least the name of a movie. Um, probably a better did, guess it, than the whole. Did not come out in 2015. <laughs> I am. It, it I am well, oh, Harry I am is, is at the judges' guess. table. Um, Harry is also venturing a guess, it looks like. Yeah, it's. Uh, I can't remember if this is exactly the right name, but it's Wild Tales, or is it... Um, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was gonna say you better be getting exact titles if we're. This is this is these are the noties. Yeah, well, I man. mean, somebody, somebody Wild I don't, Tales I don't is deserve, correct. Okay, good. I, I was gonna Wild. say if it wasn't correct, I wouldn't have deserved the point, and somebody else could yep. have taken it from me for sure. If it was like Wild Stories or something, but it was Wild Tales. Okay, thank you. I mean, I have a feeling this game is gonna be a wild story uh, for later. Um, but yeah, we are talking about Wild Tales, which was released in 2014 and directed by Damien Zifron, uh, who hasn't made any other movies since wild tales but he apparently has a film in post-production called misanthrope uh which stars ben mendelson ralph In- uh innocent um that was one i looked up and still am not comfortable pronouncing uh and shailene woodley uh and the logline for the movie yeah that's a solid trio the logline for the movie is uh, a cop is recruited by the fbi to help track down a murderer maybe purposefully blunt uh and you know, not uh, divulging too much, but uh, in any case, look out for that uh, to come out probably sometime in the next year or two. I don't know. The pandemic is weird and post-production takes time. Um, so yeah, that's what happened that's was he put, he put all of his wild tales into wild tale. He didn't, he didn't have any other idea. He basically made six movies in wild tales and he was like, ah, shit, that was all of them. Hey, yeah, word to the wise. I'm just, I'm riffing, you know, you remember that? You remember the short story in Wild Tales about the guy who gets jokerified because somebody tows his car? Yeah, it's good. That's one of the. That's a good one. Yeah, man. Uh, hey, that movie's yeah. good. It's pretty good. That's it's a, good, it's a good movie. Jason, I'm wow. Yeah, you mentioned that, and kind of, man, that same thing happened to my friend Aaron. Uh, but for for number five here, uh, Mon Final Oscar, you know, it'd be uh, it'd be really easy to shout out any number of all timers from the past few years. Uh, there's been a lot of them. You know, we got Roma shoplifters we got pain and glory uh and we've also got pod favorite parasite uh the year of oh aaron yeah. raised his hand god damn it man <laughs> just, just he was gonna guess this motherfucker was gonna he guess was... parasite <laughs> <laughs> look i'm out of the game i'm a, i'm out of the game anyway so uh look, please continue with the question you you you, you shouldn't have had that uh that extra buttery popcorn before uh playing moan oscar it made you all slipping all over the mouse here yeah <laughs> god one of the wet bandits over here um i'm gonna continue i'm gonna let aaron have his guess because uh, harry's already got three um so we kind of know where this is going and this is the last one of the game but you know for, for Anybody, the anybody's of- game cody i'm staying humble uh you fool um but good uh, a, a wise fool the year of parasite and bong juno uh was bonkers for many reasons that we're not going to get into but one point worth remembering is that one of the best films of that year not just best international film but best film period was not even nominated for best international feature film as the category has been called uh recently since it's one of the last films most of us saw in theaters together it's a scorcher harry what is that film portrait of a lady on fire portrait of a lady on fire um coming from the mouth of harry who was on fire this game yeah apparently and this is me reminding myself and and anybody who may be here listening uh apparently the film didn't go over as well in france as it did elsewhere in the world and so their film committee submitted uh les miserables which i don't think is actually the story of les miserables it's a different les miserables to represent the country in competition for the best international feature category the oscars instead i completely forgot about that 
wow, is that a bummer? But we know that film fucking rips. So say la vie, all's well that ends well. Um, speaking of ending well, uh, this has been Mona Oscar. Uh, merci et au revoir. Harry uh, almost swept. He he came. He had four points. Aaron with one. Jason with uh, a handsome mug, and Aaron with his hand up. What he got for us? Can I can I say very genuinely that the reason that I accidentally uh, buzzed in twice there uh, was because I I just kind of assumed that you would pick. Uh, uh, I was thinking like, okay, what foreign films came out recently that I can just think of? And in my mind, I was like, he's going to, of course, ask a question about Amour. It's a French, French-speaking film. I considered it. Uh, it, it of every, I think we all are generally aware of it. Uh, it won Best Foreign Film. I was like, ah, Amour. And I was like, just think, when he, when he names any, any year, I think Amour came out like 2013 <laughs> or something, but any year in the teens, just, just, just immediately put your hand up. And uh, I did that twice and it didn't work, so... See what I did. What I did, if yeah. I if we're if we're talking about our sort of methodology for the game, is I listened to the um, questions that Cody was asking, and then when no, I thought see, that I knew the answer to the question, um, that that then I raised my hand, well, Harry, uh, and then you're, I gave the answer that I thought was correct, uh, and that um, that did pretty well, I guess. Harry, you are able uh, to just, look at your record with Cody's noties versus my record. We can tally them up. I'm pretty sure I'm ahead, so. You know, maybe take a few notes from my camp. I, you miss out one or two times, but it's fine. I'll be back next week. I, I guess uh, one last uh, curtain reveal from my end. I was very close to including in a more question, but after having spent a couple minutes up top talking about Jacques Tati's uh, missteps in life, I was like, I don't know how much of a bummer I want to be on this episode because Amour is an incredible film. It is also it's the saddest uh, film. It's a sad fucking film and one that everybody should watch once and probably only once. Um, yeah. Uh, if you're listening to this, you just got like a dozen <laughs> films for your watch list. In, if you haven't in seen my right hand, I have Amour and my left hand, I have Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and I'm just weighing them back and forth like, hmm, which one? <laughs> well, I eat the, the, uh, the goat that um, Jason has prepared for me. Lamb. Lamb, excuse uh, I, me. I, excuse I, me. I, I, I corrected it. <clears throat> I gotta say. Uh, encore. Encore, Cody. Sincerely, encore for Mon Oncle, the, uh, the Oscars. Um, we've got uh, a whole series of Jacques Tati films coming for you. I'm not sure what the next one is, but it'll be going on for a few weeks here. Uh, but this has been our episode about Mon Oncle. 1958, uh, the first film in our Jacques Tati series. If you would like to go see it, it's uh, playing at the Trilon this coming week. It's also on HBO Max and the Criterion channel. Uh, if you're not ready to go to a theater yet, don't worry, I'm not either. But if you want to go to the Trilon, uh, tickets are available at Trilon.org, and there are other ways to support the Trilon at Trilon.org as well. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. I am one of the hosts of Trilove, and you can follow me at... Oh, Jesus. At this 7 p.m. recording time is really throwing me off, fellas. Uh, you can find me at Nintendoofus. You can find our podcast, Trilove, at Trilove Podcast. Um, do all of those things. Uh, Cody, please, please take us away. Hey, for sure. Uh, to be clear, I'm also a little discompobulated. Uh, I didn't even say that word correctly just now. Uh, Jason's doing great. Discompopulated. Uh, uh, Jason's great. We're all, we're all great. Everybody did a, a great job today i think if you're listening to this you're doing a great job as well um stay healthy if you haven't gotten vaccinated yet please for the love of christ fucking our lord um do not dilly dally on that any longer um i'm cody narvison you can find me on twitter at cody underscore bh
I think I know what happened here is that I'm I'm in a podcast with a bunch of weak uh, sissy morning guys. And this is Night Owls Rising now, which is why I swept so oh, okay. hard on. We're out of Cody's noties now. I can be I can be as uh, arrogant as I want. And machination, you know what it is? It's happening. You hear it? It's a comeback. <laughs> a new era is rising, and it's Start it looks machines. like me. That's right, exactly. Start the machines because we Mac are going so all ready. the way to the top. <laughs> He mentions it's a comeback because he knows in his heart that he was down for quite a long time and that he had quite a far There's no shame in that. that. There's no okay, shame well, in that. Like people, a people phoenix love, fucking rising from the love, ashes. All right. <laughs> the underdog, Did you do man, your Twitter yeah. at yet? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a, a shiitake here. You can um, follow me there. Yes. Uh, my name is Aaron. Once again, representing uh, J&J vaccine gang. Uh, we're back on the market. You can go get your J&J vaccine. One shot and done. What's better than that? Turns out not many people got that many bad side effects. So uh, number one vaccine, in my opinion. Uh, you, you can find me on Twitter at RB, please. Well, uh, thank you. We'll be in touch. Um, we're not looking for acrobats at the moment. Uh, no, go out this way. You can look in the next room without resorting to gymnastics. Gymnastics.